Large randomized blinded clinical trials of new pharmaceutical compounds may be a recent invention. But drugs have been tested in humans for centuries. And at least since the 16th century, governments have certified medicines for licensing and marketing on the basis of clinical trials. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alicia Rankin, an Associate Professor of History at Tufts University. Professor Rankin has co-authored a perspective article on clinical trials and monopolies in the early modern era. Professor Rankin, you make a distinction in your article between most drugs sold in early modern European pharmacies which did not undergo rigorous testing, and medicaments sold outside of pharmacies by unlicensed empirics. Can you tell us more about what kinds of products fit into each of those categories and why the second category required greater scrutiny? Absolutely. So the majority of drugs that were sold in pharmacies were done in a very rigorous fashion. So pharmacists needed a license to practice to sell drugs, and they sold drugs that were contained in official prescription books, which were called pharmacopoeias. These were usually published. They were usually publicly available, so everyone knew what these prescriptions were. They weren't secret at all. So there was an idea about openness that pertained to the pharmaceutical industry from these licensed pharmacists. Pharmacists usually had to be licensed by a guild, so we're in the medieval guild system still. But they were only a small percentage of the people who actually sold drugs. So there were a ton of people across Europe at this time who made their own drugs. Sometimes they were very elite people. So my first book was actually about noble women who made their own drugs and were quite recognized for it. But there were a lot of middle to lower class people who also made drugs and sold them outside of sort of the regulated pharmaceutical system. Technically, this was not allowed. Sometimes there are court cases in which they're accused of selling drugs when they're not supposed to. But by and large, a lot of people did this, and it was sort of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge recognition that this was okay. So these licenses that were discussed in the article that are officially sanctioned by some sort of monarch, the king, or a prince, are quite special because they're giving official sanction to these drugs that are sold on the open market. So they were really attractive for the vendor, for the seller, because it gave them a lot of protection. They couldn't be accused in court of illegally selling these drugs because they had the official license for them. You tell the story of a poison antidote called Silesian terracigalata, which was made from a special clay. Do you know what the active ingredient actually was, given that the trials you described were positive? Right, exactly. Yeah, terracigalata is actually a really interesting case because so many of the trials are reported as positive. It's really hard to know in historical hindsight, are these actors telling the truth? Uh, Are they presenting a more positive view? Are they leaving out negative information? We don't know that. So you tend to see the positive results and not so much the negative ones. That said, terracigalata does appear again and again as something that, that seems to have some effect And we don't know what the active ingredient in it would be. I believe it's a team of scientists in Greece who are working on this currently, testing to see if there is any truth to this, but we don't know yet what it is. But it's a clay, so I assume there are some sort of astringent properties that it has. The trials that you describe were conducted by kings and princes and mayors rather than by scientists, and those authorities could then provide official testimonials supporting the product. But were they doing their own research because they had the power to decree that people had to participate, had to take poison, for instance, and then try the antidote? Is that how it worked? That's a fabulous question. 
So the people who are actually conducting these trials are actually usually physicians. The princes themselves are not actually conducting. They're decreeing that the trial should take place and often observing them, but they're not actually handing poison to a condemned criminal or a dog. So the physicians are conducting them on behalf of the rulers, but it is because they have so much power that this can happen, especially in the cases in which human test subjects are used, because there were, even at the time, a lot of ethical questions around the use of human test subjects. So you only find especially deadly drugs like poison tested on people if there's a powerful prince who has the power to decree this has to happen. Otherwise, drug tests are much smaller and less harmful. Looking at monopolies, beginning in the 17th century, the King of France granted monopolies for remedies that were approved by royal physicians. And that system began relying on an expert committee of physicians, surgeons, and apothecaries to assess the new drugs. What do we know about those committees' processes, and how did that kind of regulatory assessment evolve over time? Yes, this is the research that my co-author, Justin Rivest, has done. We know that the real power belonged to the first physician, so the most powerful physician under the king was called the royal first physician. But he had a team of advisors who was supposed to assist him and basically keep him from asserting full power. We don't have anything like reports or deliberations, but it was supposed to be a collaborative enterprise. In the end, the first physician usually had the most power in the process, however. You point out that although these monopolies were initially granted as a gift from the monarch, eventually ownership of intellectual property became a right in itself. What were the political underpinnings of that shift? Well, this was the Enlightenment, especially in France. I should say this is a particular idea that was in France in the sense of the Enlightenment focus on individual rights and some of the ideas that led up to the French Revolution. The idea was that citizens had the right rather than a privilege granted by the monarch. They had the right, the human being, to be able to have the privilege. If they came up with their own proprietary property, the intellectual property, it was their own right to get recognition for that. So this switch from privilege to right is a big enlightenment change. Finally, what do you see as the most useful or most provocative lessons to be drawn from these early approaches to drug testing? Well, I think first and foremost, the point we're trying to make in this essay is that clinical trials, and I should emphasize that we're not talking about RCTs. We're talking about trials used in practice. They're not randomized. There's not not always controls. The clinical trials were a tool that has been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So this idea that looking at use and practice in a disciplined and sometimes quite rigorous way is not new. It's not modern. We have developed you know, many additional ways to make this far more scientific from our perspective. But this was a tool that has been used for a long, long time. Thank you, Professor Rankin.